going? We're about to start the podcast. Andy, we need to talk. Rob, I've said to you before, cold chisel is not classical music. Not about that, Andy, about tax. I know nothing about that. So how do you sort out all your things? I use my accountants. Quantify accountants in Bondi Junction. Heard of them? They're the ones that spell quantify with a PH. That's right. Quantify as in Q-U-A-N-T-I-P-H-Y. They are terrific. A medium-sized four-partner firm who specialise in tax advice and compliance and retirement and investment advice. They also have other divisions like mortgage broking and a superannuation division. They're just above the interchange in Bodnar Junction and they're not your stereotype boring accountants. They may not be hip, but they're definitely modern. Okay, I'll call them after listening to some Barnsey. Quantify Accountants, proud sponsors of Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. Hello and welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. I'm Andy Bromberger. And I'm Rob Caldor. Rob, have you ever listened to the intro to our podcasts? Rapstein Blue? Yes, have you actually ever listened to the opening of our podcast. Yeah, sure, I've listened to it. <laughs> what do you mean, Andy? Have you ever listened to the beginning? Have you actually ever listened to the instrumentation? Have you ever listened to that fabulous glissando at the beginning? Yeah, I would also describe it as a glissando, the clarinet doing its thing, is it's that right? Absolutely. Rob, today, finally, we are going to be talking about the woodwinds. And I just think it's so amazing that our podcast opens with, although it's a piano solo piece, really Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin, it starts with this iconic clarinet glissando and I think that people around the world, even if they don't even know what it is, will know that glissando and know how exciting this piece of music is. And the clarinet is part of the woodwind family and that is what we're going to be looking at today. The woodwind. Andy, I do know that there's a certain generation of people that Gershwin is God kind of thing and love anything Gershwin, i.e. my parents. Oh, absolutely. And mine too. So if we were looking at Gershwin very quickly, Gershwin was the guy who managed to bridge the gap between the classical-minded people and those people listening to jazz and brought jazz into the concert hall. And we hear that so amazingly with that opening of Rhapsody in Blue, which is so iconic and so important when we are looking at the woodwind section. Look, we're listening to it now and we'll just stop for a second and it is sounding wonderful. Andy, we could natter on about Gershwin for ages, but... I think a few things that I want to cover off before then. Yes. We are loving making this podcast. We want more people to listen to it. The best way for that to happen is for you to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or even on Spotify. More importantly, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your neighbours, have a listen. It's I think there's a lot to learn in it. Thanks so much, Rob. Yes, we are enjoying this so much and hope you are getting a lot of our, out of it as well. But as we start every podcast, Rob, we need to look at a cake. Now, people may or may not know that I started my music career as a clarinetist. And so this is a section that's very dear to my heart. And so I'm being a little indulgent today. I'm happy if you're indulgent, especially on a cake kind of way. It is. I thought I would actually 
put out one of my favorite cakes. So it's a cake that I don't actually make all that often because it is a sticky sour cream, golden syrup and ginger cake. And not everybody loves ginger. Yeah, and I think <laughs> the rest of the ingredients, I think everyone's giving the thumbs up. I'm a ginger fan, so I'm very excited to uh, wrap my lips around that cake. Oh, what, good. What's it called? What sort it, of... As I said, it's a sticky sour cream, golden syrup and ginger cake. And the reason why it's so gingery is that it has ginger powder in it. Ooh. It has grated ginger in it and it has crystallized ginger in it, as well as having sour cream and golden syrup and a whole lot of other yummy things. So it's almost like a pudding rather than a cake, but you can sample it later. Yes, as everyone knows, a little carrot for getting through every episode. Not that it's not that it's a burden. Getting through every episode. Uh, Love it. Is <laughs> the cake. I'm looking forward to it. You've given me a quick sighter of the aforementioned cake. Yes. But it will be on my website, so have a look at it. And it's fantastic. And it's a cake by a wonderful chef by the name of Belinda Jeffrey. And she makes some fabulous cakes. So I highly recommend her cakes. And I highly recommend, if you like ginger, this ginger cake. I'd love to see if anyone actually makes any of the cakes to send it to our Instagram page. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. I will send the photo of this cake. And then we'll see how we go. All right. So, Andy, without further ado, let's let's throw those strings away and jump into the woodwind section of the orchestra. Perfect. Rob, the woodwind section of the orchestra, if we're looking at an orchestra, is the section behind the strings. And it's made up of four instruments, the flute, the oboe, the clarinet, and the bassoon. Now, unlike the string section, which we can call a string family, because as we talked about it last time, they are all first cousins, if not brothers and sisters of each other. They are all very much a family. If we look at the four woodwinds, they're all very different. And not only are they all very different within themselves, they have a family of their own. So we have a flute, which is actually metal now. We have an oboe, which has a double reed, a clarinet, which has a single reed, and a bassoon, which has also a double reed, but a very different double reed from the oboe double reed. Uh, Andy, I'm interested in finding out more. As someone that went through primary school in Australia, where does the recorder sit? Oh, God. The recorder is obviously a woodwind instrument because it's made of wood but it isn't in our classical orchestra. Interestingly though, when orchestras started to be formed, more in the Baroque period, a recorder-like instrument was often played. So from the Baroque into the classical period, the flute went from being played like a recorder to being transverse, being played upright. So if you go to early music concerts. Sometimes there are recorder-like instruments in those ensembles. But we are not looking at the recorder. I'm so sorry, Rob. We are looking at the flute to start with. Let's get going. Tell me a bit about the flute. Okay. So the flute is an instrument that doesn't have any reeds. It is played across your body. It's hanging out to the side of your body. You lift it up, it's transverse. And the way you produce a sound on the flute is if you were blowing a Coke bottle. 
where you blow across the hole at the top of the mouthpiece. Most of the air goes out, but some of that air is pushed down the hole of the mouthpiece and goes down the flute, and that's how we get a sound. I'm going to play for you, Rob, just the sound of a note played on just the mouthpiece of the flute. Andy, that was a single note of the flute being played. That's exactly right. And the reason why I asked you to listen to it is because that's the fundamental. That's the basis of flute playing is blowing that air. And it is quite a complicated way to for the sound to be created. You don't put your mouth on the hole. You have to hold the instrument in the proper direction with your air coming in exactly the right place to create that perfect sound. Now, you mentioned with the other woodwinds, they're all reed-based, but mm -hmm. there's no reed in the no flute. Reed. No reed in the flute. So the way they make the sound is as that air is pushed down that hole, it vibrates and that causes the sound to come out. There are lots of little interesting things about the flute and the way you hold your mouth when you play an instrument that you blow is called an embouchure. So I'm going to be saying embouchure a lot, so if you know what I'm talking about. But when you play a flute, the embouchure is so important because if you want to play louder, you have to blow harder. If you want to play softer, you blow less. But if you want to play higher notes on a flute you don't have what we call an octave key which you press and that pings the notes up higher the way you make higher notes on a flute is actually by the way you blow by blowing more intensely pings the notes up higher it's interesting flutes has got this blowy blowiness about it and it has a blowiness about it because so much of the air is actually escaping. So a tiny bit of air, really, when you blow across the mouthpiece, actually goes down. The rest of it escapes. Flute players, they're called flautists, practice long notes a lot because so much of their air escapes that if they want to play a long phrase without having to take a breath, that's a very hard thing because they're losing so much air escaping from their instrument. The flute has also seemed to have had a few people escape from the classical world into more contemporary. Absolutely, yes. There, there are jazz flautists, there are flautists who play in rock bands and things like that. It is a very versatile instrument. Even someone like Lizzo is a flautist. Oh, of course, of course. Yes, she is. Mind you, I don't know how she does it with those fingernails. But, <laughs> <laughs> Rob, I'm surprised you haven't asked me this. How can it be a wood wind instrument if it's made of metal? Ah, yes. A very good question. I wonder what the answer is. Initially, the flute was a wood instrument. It was made out of a piece of wood. It had smaller holes for your fingers than the modern flute. And it didn't have many keys. It had a couple of keys, but not a lot of keys. And so it had a much different sound to our modern flute today. And that leads us to our next example, Rob, where this is going to be hard to listen to on podcast, but I hope that you hear it, that this guy is going to be playing a piece of music and he's going to be alternating between a wooden Baroque flute and a modern, in his case, gold flute. 
And so if you listen very carefully, you can hear the different sound and the different tonal qualities from the wood flute to the golf flute. Let's have a listen. So that was a wooden flute. Let's hear the modern metal or gold flute. Subtle difference, but it was definitely perceivable. It had a slightly more organic sound to it, the woody one. So the wood one has a more mellow sound. It needs more air to push the sound out. And the metal sounds almost buzzy in comparison to the mellowness of the, the Baroque flute. So obviously, to me, the metal ones are more recent and came, I don't know, was it the industrial revolution that we're talking so yes so there's a guy we call all of these flutes boehm flutes and boehm was a guy who who really took the flute from that basic instrument into a much much more modern instrument he did this in the in 1832 to 1847 so he really spent a long time sort of adding more keys to it making it a much more usable and user-friendly instrument because I imagine sort of the wooden Baroque flutes and does that, is it got a little brother, the piccolo? Are they? Yes, we'll talk about that, okay. yeah. But again, being, I imagine it in a court, in a king's court being played and a bit of a moving your head around as you play it, kind of jointiness about it. Yes, well, the flute, I mean, the flute, interestingly, the flute is one of the oldest instruments or a flute-type instrument is one of the oldest instruments. And you're absolutely right in the fact that Frederick the Great played the flute and there's a very famous painting of him playing the flute and all of his cronies sitting around listening very attentively to his playing. So it was, it has been an instrument that has been around for a very long time, yes. Okay. So Rob, let's have a bit of a listen, to, first of all, to some Baroque flute playing. Then we're going to listen to some modern flute playing on a modern instrument. And then we're gonna have a very quick talk about that piccolo. Thank you. 
So Andy, talk me through those two very different pieces. Okay, so the first piece is for solo baroque flute. And if you can hear, the flute itself was a much smaller instrument than the second piece of music. And the sound produced, as I said, as you said before, a much more organic sound. It doesn't have the huge range of dynamics that the modern flute does and the huge range of notes. If we contrast that with the second example that we heard, that's a piece of music that uses the entire range of the flute. So the flute goes down, its lowest note is about a middle C and it flies up couple of octaves two or three or so octaves above that and so in the second piece it uses all of those sounds and a whole lot of techniques too like flutter tonguing it's interesting to imagine a flute playing because obviously i've seen various bits it seems like an instrument which it's impossible to stand still and play because of the angle you're at and because it's quite a light instrument like you couldn't do that with a bassoon no because it's just weighs a ton. And there's a freedom, I think, that because you're not actually putting the instrument in your mouth, but on your lower lip, there is maybe a more of a feel of freedom about it than you do with other instruments. And maybe it's because you're holding it out to the side Mm. also, rather than having it in front of you. Being a clarinetist and having played in orchestras, it's sometimes you have to hedge around as the flute player is making a lot of movement in front of you so that you can actually see the conductor. So there are sometimes disadvantages by of being too having too much movement when you play the flute. Doing a bit of limbo as you're in the orchestra. That's right, that's right. When I said to you before, Rob, that the strings are a family in itself, but each of the members of the woodwind section have a family and probably the most well-known other flute in the flute family is the piccolo now the piccolo is half the size of a flute it's exactly the same as a flute it's just everything's half instead of having the open holes of a flute they're usually covered because it's just all so small and often piccolo players have to play with some cotton wool or a plug in their in their right ear so that all that sound doesn't go straight into their ear and a piccolo is what we call a transposing instrument in that the note that they see on the music and the note that they play are different so they all see a middle c on the music but the note they play isn't that middle c it's actually an octave above so they play everything an octave higher than what they actually see. Why is that? Because the staff, the, that thing, those five lines that music is written on, if the piccolo was going to play music at sight that is actually there, there would be so many lines that they would have to read above the, those five lines that it would be very difficult Concept. Okay. Do you get that? I understand. So, so it's, how, it's how it's written. You take it's written as a lower C, but it's actually it's a nod and a wink, and you're doing two or three octaves up. Above yes, that. exactly. So a, a, a one octave above. So just say they are playing a C above the the staff. That's two ledger lines. We call it two lines above the staff. If that piccolo player was playing that C and then was actually going to play that sound, 
there would be so many higher ledger lines that it would be almost impossible to read. Interesting. So what they read and what actually comes out are two different things. Do most flautists also play the piccolo on the side? Oh, I would have thought that most flautists can play the piccolo on the side and probably have a piccolo as part of their repertoire if they are professional musicians. Andy, there are some uh, quite high notes reached by the piccolo. Is it the highest instrument? Does it instrument that goes the highest in the orchestra? Mm, that's a very good question. I would have thought it would definitely be. The reason I'm hesitating so much because I'm thinking of all the harmonics that a, the violin can play. Mm. They can play all these very high harmonics. I'm thinking of the notes that some of the percussion instruments can play that are very high. But I would have thought that it was probably the highest. Definitely high-pitched. Very high-pitched. And you can hear when you hear that, you can understand why it's a transposing instrument, why what they see and what they read are two totally different things. So let's move away from the flute to the next instrument in the orchestra, and that's the oboe. So the oboe is a double reed instrument. So you might be thinking, what is she talking about? Think about two bits of cane that are shaved very thin at the top. And these bits of cane are just a centimetre or so wide. And they are then bound together at their base. If you look at these bits of cane wound together at the top, there is a tiny, tiny hole between both bits of cane. And so what oboists do is that they put their lips over the part of the cane that they have scratched away so it's quite thin and they purse their lips and they blow. And that's the way those two bits of cane vibrate together and that creates a sound. So unlike the flute which has a mouthpiece and unlike the clarinet that has a mouthpiece, both the oboe and the bassoon have these two bits of cane wrapped together that create. There's this kind of straw-like thing that they blow into, am I right? That straw-like thing is the reed. Okay. Is the reed. And unlike clarinetists, oboists make their own reeds. Ooh. So they get the cane, they cut it, they shave it and shave it down until it's at that right thickness, and then they twine those two bits together, and they do what we call a crow where they blow the reed and depending on the sound of this crow depends on whether they keep the reed, try and fix the reed or they get rid of the reed. So oboists spend an enormous amount of time making their reed because the quality of the reed and the sound of the reed indicates the sound that they're going to actually produce. So uh, the oboists are also handy people. They handy, are very handy, handy men people. or women. They are very handy people and they use some very sharp implements to make these reeds. Now, Rob, we're going to listen to some crowing. 
And we're going to listen to some good crowing and some bad crowing. Did you expect to hear a nice sound? No, they were pretty horrible, but it was... <laughs> It's always good to get to the bottom of how and why. Yes, so that crow sound does sound horrid, but it really does help an oboist know what the instrument is going to sound like because it is so dependent. The sound that they make is so dependent on that reed. It's all about the reed when it comes to oboes. But oboes, and the other interesting thing about oboe, if I asked you who tunes the orchestra... Who are you going to tell me? As in which instrument everyone sort of tunes around? Yeah. I would have gone one of the alphas. So I would have gone the violin or the piano. Okay, it's not always a piano in an orchestra. So I would have gone violin. Okay, you're wrong. Not it's... the first time. <laughs> it's the oboe. So think about it. The concert master, the first violinist, comes into the orchestra after everyone's seated, before the conductor comes out, and he or she comes up, turns their back to the audience and looks at the orchestra. And that's when the oboe plays their A and the whole orchestra tunes up on that A. Let's have a listen to that. The oboe kicks everything off. You could hear that. You could even hear the odd person coughing at the beginning of the orchestra. But it's the first sound you hear is the oboe and everyone tuning up around. And you might ask why. That's a good question, Andy. I think it's better if you answer it. The answer is twofold. The first one is that when we've talked about this guy, Lully, in France with Louis Fourteenth, when he was getting all his strings together, he would sometimes add another instrument, something, an instrument called a hautbois. Hautbois is actually an early oboe. And because the sound was so different from all the strings, it was a really good sound to tune up to because it stood out a lot more. And there's also another thought that the reason why the oboe tunes is because it has this sort of penetrating sound to it and it's a sound that cuts through so you notice in that example that even though so many of the orchestra are actually tuning you can still hear the oboe playing its a so it has a penetrating sound so most people think that it's the violins that tune but in actual fact it's the oboe that tunes the whole orchestra always a new thing to learn always a new thing to learn the other really interesting thing about the oboe, is that the oboe is conical inside. So instead of it having a bore, the inside of the instrument straight down all the way through, it actually goes in and out. And that also helps create the sound of the oboe. So you couldn't have the oboe sound if it was cylindrical. 
the conical shape of the the bore of the instrument actually helps with the sound itself and I'd like to play for you just as we did with the flute some baroque oboe compared to some modern oboe When you heard that, you notice that even though there are a lot of strings, the oboe was still audible within the strings. It had cut through and seemed to be leading the melody. That's right, exactly. And that's because it was the solo instrument. But you can hear how even in that dense sound, you can still hear the oboe quite clearly. Now, the second piece we're going to listen to is a modern piece. It's a piece by Morricone and it's Gabriel's oboe. Now, this is the famous melody from the mission. So most people have forgotten about the mission, but everybody remembers this. And this is just showing the incredible beauty of the oboe. The oboe has this, not we've said penetrating, but this almost haunting sound. It's one of the most gorgeous sounding instruments. It is very haunting, Andy. It's like it does have a quite a mysterious sound to it. Mm, mysterious is a very good word for it. Yeah, it is just it's a sound that is almost unexplainable. If we're talking about this in Peter and the Wolf, the duck is the oboe. So the flute is the bird, the duck is the oboe. So if you have that memory of what Peter and the Wolf sounds like, that's the duck. And Rob, before we finish on the oboe section, remember I talked about families. Oboe has another family member that we need to talk about. And that's the cor anglais, which means the English horn. And the cor anglais is an instrument that is five notes lower than the oboe. And it's longer. And it looks like it's laying an egg. It has this round bulbous bottom bit to it. And people say it looks like it's laying an egg. But just as beautiful as an oboe sound is 
The core anglais is almost even more beautiful. Have a listen to this. One other thing about the oboe, before we move on to my favorite instrument, is that it's a really hard instrument to play. It really just has so many little idiosyncrasies that make it such a demanding instrument. It's a really, really hard instrument to play, the oboe. You've got, to, you've got to be technically very capable to play the other. Yeah, yeah, and you really have to have almost great tenacity to get through it and to play it beautifully. But once you play it beautifully, it's awesome. Rob, we're moving into my favourite one. Andy, the clarinet, for people that haven't been listening for the last half an hour, <laughs> I think we get you like the clarinet and you play it. Why did you play the clarinet? What made you pick that up as opposed to the oboe? Are you getting back to Peter and the Wolf? My dad put on Peter and the Wolf and he said, what animal do you like? And I liked the cat mm. and the cat was the clarinet. And I always thought that was quite ironic because I, sorry cat lovers, but cats aren't my favorite animals. But I loved the sound that the cat made in Peter and the Wolf. And that's how I started playing clarinet. Cat lovers keep listening. I personally <laughs> like cats and dogs. So a clarinet is also very different from all the other instruments that we will be talking about today and actually last time too, in that the clarinet didn't evolve over time. The clarinet was actually invented. We have a guy by the name of Denner who at the beginning of the 1700s basically invents the clarinet. We had two instruments beforehand, something called a chalumeau and something called a baroque clarinet. And it was this chalumeau that Denner added some keys to that created this new instrument that then became one of the most loved instruments in the orchestra, the clarinet. Let's have a quick listen to a little bit of both the chalumeau and the baroque clarinet. And then we'll talk more about what a clarinet actually is. So what you heard is that first clarinet, that Chalamo clarinet, which was an instrument that really didn't have many keys and it just could play sort of the bare minimum of the notes on the clarinet. Like it couldn't really play many notes. And it was one of the first instruments like the clarinet. And then we moved to the 
Baroque clarinet, which has a much higher sound and a sound that is much more resembles the clarinet that we know it. And it had a few more keys to it. The holes were more open. It was an easier instrument to play. And so from there, we move to the instrument of the classical period, the instruments of, of Mozart, of, of the classical period, moving into the 19th century. We call our instrument the Bohm clarinet because when they decided to make the instrument a lot more user-friendly, like they did with the flute, they took a lot of the fingerings and the ideas that Bohm had done with the flute and they put it on the clarinet. So is that today's modernish clarinet? Yes. Is a Bohm one? It's yes. The- it's black, jet yes. black. Yes. And the big important thing about a clarinet is that it is a transposing instrument. Now, we've used that word before when we talked about the, the piccolo, but this is very complicated. So I'm just going to explain it. If you don't get it, it is very difficult to get. All the other instruments are tuned to what we call C. So if they play a C on their instrument and a piano plays a C on the piano, it's the same note. When they were building a clarinet, remember that this is something that didn't evolve. This is something that was made. When they made a clarinet to the length of a C clarinet, it didn't sound good. It was out of tune. It had a yucky sound. So they extended the length of the instrument one tone lower to what we call a B flat. And so if I was to play a C on my clarinet, the note that would be on the piano playing would be a B flat. So a clarinet is actually one tone lower than what is actually written on the piano. So if the piano wants to play a C, we play a D to make our notes sound the same. Reminds me of when it's daylight savings, working out if time's moving forward or moving back. <laughs> it's a bit like that. Now, luckily, most of our music, clarinet music, has been transposed for us. So we don't have to transpose it from sight. But there are the other instruments that we'll be talking about later who actually transpose at sight. So they see a C and they have to play a D. So what they see and what they play are totally different bit of mind trickery going on absolutely but we also haven't talked about one other very important part of the clarinet and that's the mouthpiece and the reed single reed from memory single reed exactly so unlike an oboe who makes their own reeds an oboist who makes their own reeds clarinetists on the whole buy reeds and then sometimes scrape away a little bit to make them a little bit better but on the whole we buy our reeds and what we have is we have a mouthpiece And then on the mouthpiece, we put the reed against the mouthpiece. And so there's a little bit of a hole between the reed and that mouthpiece. We have what we call a ligature, which then binds the mouthpiece and the reed together. That lets that reed vibrate when you play. So you put your mouth with your top teeth on the top of the mouthpiece, your bottom lip goes over your bottom teeth and gently sits on that reed. And when you blow, that reed vibrates and creates a sound. 
And the ligature's just string. It's not made out of no, any it, animal intestines no, or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not made out of intestine and it's not usually made of string. It's usually either a leather or a, a rubber that has a little bit of flexibility because you need to loosen the ligature to get it on and then tighten it so it's tight enough to hold everything together. One more thing, and then we'll move on to the next instrument. The other thing we need to know is that because the clarinet is a transposing instrument, if you're going to do a lot of orchestral music, you actually usually have two clarinets. You have the B-flat clarinet, and you have one that is just a little bit bigger and a little bit lower called the A clarinet. And you may see when you go to hear an orchestra that the clarinetist will pick up an instrument and pull off the mouthpiece and pick up another instrument and plonk that mouthpiece onto the other another instrument and keep on playing. And that's because we are playing in a different key to everybody else. Sometimes it's easier to actually change instruments so that we don't play in a horrible key. So if it's, there's an ease to play in maybe a piece of music that has only one or two sharps or flats rather than something that has four or five or six, you change your instrument. And the music is written. So the music will say clarinet in A or clarinet in B flat. Confused? Andy, as you've seen, there's a level of confusion in all elements of this for me. However, I do understand it. And it obviously would be quite visually interesting when the person's changing mouthpieces mid Piece. Yes, absolutely. And if you watch an orchestra carefully, if you watch a, the wind section carefully, you would often see the clarinets changing clarinets. Let's have a little bit of a listen to some clarinet music. Andy, my pre-thoughts on the clarinet were that it also jumped ship and went jazzy and klezmer and things like that. So it's not just classical. That piece definitely was very jazzy and vibrant. Absolutely. So the clarinet is really one of the most versatile of instruments. And you're right, when the jazz movement started, it started with a clarinet involved. And clarinet really does bands and jazz bands and marching bands and lots and lots of things have a clarinet involved and you're right and one of the reasons is that it has an enormous range in fact you know you're asking about the piccolo the clarinet has the greatest range it goes all the way down to a low e below middle c and goes way up three octaves above middle c so it has a range of over four octaves so it's a very very large range of notes it has to play and i think also a very beautiful tonal quality that fits in 
to so many different types of music. Annie, I sense you could clarinet brag for days. Maybe. But let's move on to the big fella. Do we have to? Because like, I've got more to say about the clarinet. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we need to talk about this incredible instrument, the bassoon. So the bassoon is the daddy of the woodwind section. If we're going back to old Peter and the Wolf, it's the grandpa. It has this really deep sound to it. As I said to you last time, Rob, it's a bit delusional you think the bigger the instrument the bigger the sound but again like we saw with the double bass the bassoon has really quite soft sound to it you wouldn't think so on such an instrument that is so large how big do you think a bassoon is i don't think i don't can't picture i don't know like six feet five feet okay so if you see a bassoon just as it is it's about four foot five but it's an instrument that's on top of each other. It goes all the way down, it turns around, it goes all the way up and goes even higher. So if you were to stretch out that whole instrument, it's about eight foot four. It has a crook, so you have that double reed again. The double reed is a different shape to the double reed of the oboe. The oboe double reed is almost like a pencil, while the double reed for a bassoon, almost a triangle. And again, they have that crow. We'll play a crow in a second. And then that reed is attached to a crook, some that looks like a crook. And then that crook attaches to the instrument. And the instrument is played across your body. So the top half is to your left and the bottom half is to your right. And you might be wondering how you actually hold this instrument because it's an enormously heavy instrument and you can't obviously hold it with your thumb like you do an oboe or a clarinet. So what they often do when they sit is they have a strap and the strap is connected to the towards the bottom of the instrument and then they sit on that strap. And so the weight of the instrument is actually being held up by their bottom because it's or their weight of themselves because they're sitting on that strap and that means that they have a lot more freedom with the instrument because they're not having to hold up the instrument itself it's fascinating all these logistics it is and there are a few more really interesting things about the bassoon but i want to play you the crow again the bassoon crow so you can get that difference in sound between the oboe crow and the bassoon crow Andy, I didn't think there'd be so much mention of crows in this podcast. (laughs) And do the bassoonists make make their own On their own reeds, yes, they do. But were you surprised at the sound of that crow? Did you expect a lower crow than than that? Yeah, I did, actually. It was a lot higher than I would imagine. Yeah, it's interesting. You would think that an instrument that was so low would have a low-sounding crow but it doesn't it has quite a high-sounding crow but the instrument itself is very low now there are a few other little bits and pieces that I just want to go about with the bassoon if you think about the bassoon it's a low instrument so if you're playing the instrument and you're playing the hole you're putting your fingers on the holes the distance between one note and another is going to be very large because the notes are so low Think about the strings of a piano. The lower the strings of the piano, the thicker the strings of the piano. So the way that the 
makers drill the holes in the bassoon isn't so they go straight. They drill them at an angle because if you were trying to play two notes, one had your fingers on one hole and you wanted to play the note below, the distance would be so great that your finger wouldn't be able to stretch that far. So the hole is drilled at an angle further away. So you don't have to stretch your fingers wildly. The internals are stretched wildly. So a bassoonist has 12 keys on the back of their bassoon that they have to manipulate with their thumbs to change notes. So it's not all just done on their fingers and their keys like flutes and clarinets and oboes. They have 12 different keys to fiddle around with on their thumbs. I think we spoke in the string episode about the role of physios and string players. I imagine more hand specialists involved with the woodwind section. Potentially, yes, absolutely. And I really, I haven't spoken to a bassoonist about their thumbs, but I would have thought things like RSI and things like that must be quite usual when it comes to bassoon players. Let's have a listen now, Rob, to some bassoon playing. playing a tree interesting i'll listen again okay i always think it sounds it has one of the most you use the word organic i always think it has one of the most organic sounds it really does almost to me sound like they've hollowed a tree and you're playing it and it has this organic sound to it but now we have covered all the four instruments of the woodwind family and as i've said it's not a woodwind family at all the woodwinds section and I want to play you a quartet for these four instruments. Listen out for each of these instruments but not just each of these individual instruments. Have a listen to how they blend beautifully because I think one of the beautiful qualities of the woodwind section is that although they are individuals they do have this incredibly beautiful sound together.
Andy, who was that that we were listening to? <laughs> you just want me to say the name, don't you? <laughs> I was interested in the music. No, it was... Gopfart is the guy's name. German, obviously. Mm. Very unfortunate name. It does show the family beautifully. And the wind quintet that you may have heard of is that quartet with a French horn, a horn added to it. But we'll talk more about that next time, Rob. Look, Andy, it seems only appropriate that the woodwind section is we get to the conclusion with the piece by Gorp Fart. (laughs) But uh, I really enjoyed today and obviously in the Pavlov dog kind of thing, I am starting to salivate because I can sense some sugar about to enter my system in the uh, the cake that we spoke about. In the guise of a ginger cake, yes. And thank you very much, everybody. I hope you've all learnt something about this very interesting section, the woodwind section. And next time we'll be looking at the brass section, Rob, and that is... Again, a family. It's a family full of first and second cousins, but definitely a family. Andy, I am very excited about the brass section. It's one of my favourite families of the oh. orchestra, so I will be interested to hearing what you've got to say. Like we bang on about every time, please let people know about the podcast. The more people that listen to it, the more we will make. That's mm. the bottom line. Rate and review it. Send, get, rate and review, let your friends know. But Andy, let's put the kettle on, let's have a drink, let's have a piece of cake as we end today's one with a bit of more of Gershwin. Beautiful, and how perfect is that? Thank you very much, Rob, and we'll see everybody next time. Thanks again. Bye. has been produced by etales.com.au that's www.etales.com.au does your company or organization or even yourself need a podcast contact rob at etales.com.au